Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is on the air. Your host, Nathan Wilson, with Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, is excited about providing information every gardener and non-gardener, homeowner, and apartment dweller can use. From vegetables to containers and compost to pruning shears, Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is here for you. Now here's Nathan. Well, good morning, gang, and welcome to New Southern Garden. Of course, I'm your gardening pal, Nathan Wilson, and as always, I'm very glad that you've decided to join us this morning. I mean, what what better thing could you be doing on a Saturday morning and spending it an hour, just an hour, with yours truly? We've had a lot of fun this year, and we're... <laughs> halfway through we're halfway through this year of course not just halfway through here at new southern garden but you are too and so welcome to the month of july our favorite summer month i don't know as long as we keep getting some nice showers here and there i think july will be a wonderful time uh, for us to continue to grow things and plant things and try new things and cut flowers bring them in the house you know we got to pull some weeds We've always got things like that to do. But there's a lot of things that summer brings us. Of course, you're probably already starting to harvest your tomatoes. I'm sure you've been harvesting squash for some time. And you know, as summer summer gets going and we get deeper and deeper into summer, those squashes, they'll kind of fall to the wayside. The tomatoes, if you've got those indeterminate types, which of course, indeterminate tomatoes, like big boys, better boys, those are just some of the most well-known indeterminates. But they are those special tomatoes that continue to bloom and set fruits as long as it stays warm. So we've got plenty more months to go, and you can continue to plant vegetables with no problem. Uh, we've got great growing season, very long growing season in the south, and we can embrace that. As a matter of fact, somebody once told me you could plant a tomato in August and still have some fruits off of it still get some tomatoes in the late season so keep doing it keep trying it if you had some failures because we did have a lot of presence of diseases uh, due to the cold I shouldn't say cold but cool spring and then wet weather we've had uh, that that really brought in some diseases I know a lot of folks uh, brought me their pictures or cuttings of leaves and whatnot from all kinds of plants they brought it to the nursery Lanier nursery and gardens in flowery branch georgia where you can find me throughout the week they would bring in plants and loaded with diseases we've seen a lot of diseases powdery mildew has been everywhere there's been i've even seen some septoria leaf spot on tomatoes i think we answered a question uh, from a listener a few weeks back about some spots on tomatoes of course there are issues that may arise but that's, in my opinion, that's sort of part of the fun of gardening. You know, if everything went as planned, you would have nothing uh, to surprise you. <laughs> and so even though diseases and insects and bugs and Japanese beetles running rampant right now, I've been picking them off certain plants. And you know what I do? 
I put a boot to them. Yes, I do eliminate them with really no regrets. No regrets. They're not supposed to be here anyways, hence the name Japanese beetle. is an imported invasive species that we have to deal with here in the South now, much like kudzu in the plant world. And I have no problem with trying to eradicate and get rid of as many as possible. But like I said, these things surprise you. They bring, you know, uh, let's see, they bring a sort of sad, um, a sad surprise in a way. And a sad excitement. Because even though we don't want our precious plants to be damaged or consumed by bugs or disease, that's going to happen. And so be on the lookout. Be on the lookout for potential problems in your landscape. That's the very first step in managing pests. Managing pests, the very first step is to scout. Scouting means you go into the landscape, you go and look at leaves, you look at stems, and see if there are any potential problems that are on the rise. So be doing that, and if you find something that you can't identify or don't know how to control whatever is going on, then feel free to check us out. Send us your questions Uh, You can post pictures on our Facebook page at New Southern Garden or Instagram. And you can also send us a question directly to the website at uh, NewSouthernGarden.com. And while you're there submitting a question, because we take questions to answer at the end of the month, uh, the last Saturday of the month, we do go to the mailbag and answer the questions that we can get to in that hour program. And we'd love for you to be a part of that. But while you're at NewSouthernGarden.com, just check out every episode that we've ever had right there at your fingertips on demand and for free. Uh, But you can also uh, download the uh, New Southern Garden podcast, which is this show you're listening to. It's just online after the show plays. And so there's a lot of ways to keep in touch with us. And if you miss, because, you know, this is the season not just for gardening, but it's also the season for vacations. And so if you can't listen to us on a Saturday morning, don't cry about it. Just wipe those tears and go to NewSouthernGarden.com or any podcasting app on your smart device, phone, tablet, whatever other smart devices they're making these days. There are a lot of smart devices out there, I'll tell you that. But regardless, we are here to help you, to inspire you to grow more, and of course, uh, to get you growing and growing well. But let us talk a little bit about what we're going to discuss today. Of course, this time last year, we actually were uh, on on the air on July 4th. And so I just had a few minutes there about uh, founding gardeners, the founding gardeners, which I I received inspiration from, from the book called The Founding Gardeners by um, Andrea Wolf, I believe. Well, in that book, it's a lengthy book, but it's it's not super long, but it does go through uh, detailed history, very good and well-detailed history about the founding fathers who also were very interested, very much so, in agriculture and horticulture and anything that dealt with growing. She talks all about it. And, you know, at that time of, the, um, of history, uh, the United States was not even necessarily formed until the Declaration of Independence on 1776. But before that, of course, had a short history uh, from the settlers coming over from uh, Europe. And of course, uh, they brought a lot of traditions with them. And so in this book, you, you, you get to go on this adventure with all these characters, particularly like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, uh, James Madison, uh, some of those first early guys who were, who had farms and of course they had large gardens and things uh, 
there's a lot of history. If you're a history buff, there's definitely a lot of the early American history, but also history on the individual personal level uh, with these uh, gentlemen. And so, of course, they're traveling back and forth from the United States to Europe in many cases with uh, uh, ambassadorships and whatnot. And they also go on garden tours in England and other parts in France and whatnot. And so you get a lot of history about that. So definitely check out the book called Found, The Founding Gardeners by Andrea Wolf. Uh, she herself is an a English person, not just English speaker, but from England. But I think it's interesting that she had so much uh, uh, um, oh, what's the word? Interest in the American. I think she lives here now, though. But she's got a lot of history uh, interest in the American history. So that's pretty cool to 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 hear her take on it. And of course, a lot of good research in there. I think you'll enjoy that. But so I thought we would talk uh, today about the founding gardeners and some of the more details because I sort of expanded upon my brief discussion last year. Uh, and we're going to talk more details about these individual people who you know very well from even elementary school history class, but maybe you didn't know the history of their love for horticulture and love for gardening. So we're going to get into all that. But today I think it is time for another gardening rant, something that has I've been thinking about and kind of been explaining to customers uh, and clients at Lanier Nursery and Gardens. You know, when you, and I don't know, I'm not necessarily mad about it, but it does irritate me. So, when you look through these magazines, gardening magazines or even gardening books that have been recently published, there are a lot of maybe articles, but more so advertisements for branded plant material. And let me give you some examples. We'll throw some names out there. The Knockout Rose is a branded rose by the Star Rose and Plant Company. Then there's the Encore Azalea. That is a brand. Somebody owns that brand. Now, of course, the um, Encore Azalea is a great azalea. It blooms in the spring, and we're seeing some at the nursery blooming now. Then they'll probably bloom very well again uh, as we go into fall. So revolutionary, unique characteristics that this company owns. Uh, there are Southern Living Plants. You'll see that throughout the Southern Living magazine. That's for sure. They're trying to uh, advertise their products. And then, let's see, what's another one? Uh, Proven Winners is another one. They have a white pot. When you go into the nurseries or garden centers, you'll see this white potted plant. Okay, so these are what we call branded plant material. But not just, there's, it's not just the brand. Behind the brand and each plant, as a matter of fact, every plant in any pot uh, that this brand owns, they have a patent for. So just like an inventor will go and patent his new invention. He owns the rights to it. He gets royalties for anything that is used for. It's the same with these plants. So now, this has never been done before, other than in modern, the modern era here. We've got this situation where people have bred. They have uh, been changing plants in certain ways, which is not new. We've been doing that for thousands, uh, ten thousands of years, technically. And so with that in mind, now uh, the government is giving a patent for these individual plants, uh, for these plant materials. And that means that for, I guess it's about 20 years, every plant that is grown has to be grown by a licensed grower and royalties are paid back to the brand for the plants that were grown. 
All right. To me, this is strange and unusual, and I think it's timely because our discussion today about, uh, uh, well, particularly Thomas Jefferson, he says something uh, that is, is really pivotal that, uh, let's see, let me just summarize, then we'll talk about details later. But Thomas Jefferson says basically that the most important thing an individual could do would be to render a useful plant to its country. He had a very open and free, free atmosphere about this. But now these useful plants are patented. And for instance, if a certain plant like the Encore Azalea, if that plant has a patent, it has to be grown by a licensed grower. Somebody like me at a, you know, Ma and Pa retail nursery down the street, we can't grow it. Legally, we can't grow it. We cannot propagate it, I should say. We can't make cuttings. We can't stick those cuttings and try to uh, root them to sell. We have to go to a licensed grower to purchase it. And on top of that, not only can the retail nursery uh, who's not licensed to grow it, uh, not only can we just not grow it, we can't even pot a small plant into a larger plant as it grows. There are some strict guidelines to these patented plants that uh, you may not even really realize. And so the reason I tell you all this is because if you go into a local nursery center or, or garden center, nursery, plant nursery, you might not find a lot of these plants available. And there are so many plants on patents these days that it's, it's, it'd be hard, it'd be impossible for one individual to have them all, if you will, collect them all, right? So... Look at the magazines, enjoy the plants, but sometimes it's going to be kind of hard to find them because, you know, there may be two people or ten people in the entire nation who have the license to grow that specific branded plant that they have been advertising in all these magazines. So don't get discouraged when you can't find it right of way, but if you go to a local nursery and you can't find that exact plant, I'm sure that nursery can help you find something that is similar, a good alternative. So again, like I said, I just want to tell you about all this. I'm not really, I guess I'm sort of ranting because it, it makes selling plants harder when you can't find the plants that are being marketed to you in the magazines or on television or Facebook ads or wherever. It makes it hard for us as the retailer to do that when we can't find them or we have to pay extremely high prices to get them to you. It makes it really tough. So with all that being said, like I said, if there is something that you really like that's branded, don't cry if you can't find it right away, right away in a nursery or garden center because there are plenty of plants that are not on patents that great garden, garden centers are growing, and they're great plants. Uh, but always be looking for the new stuff. This is New Southern Garden after all. Always be looking for the new stuff. So when we get back, let's talk about something new. That's a little old, and that is the Founding Gardeners of America on this July 4th weekend. Hang on tight, gang. Hey, gang, it's Nathan. Thanks so much for listening to the New Southern Garden podcast. Of course, I love providing you with horticultural information to get you growing and growing well. But sometimes you need more than just information. You need plants. So I'd love for you to join me at Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, where you can find me throughout the week. But you can find more than just me, of course. <laughs> at Lanier Nursery and Gardens, you can browse through our wide selection of ornamental trees, glorious shrubs, and colorful perennials and annuals. And I want to thank all our 
listeners who have already made the trek to Lanier Nursery. It's been a pleasure to meet you and hear your gardening stories. We've got a wonderful crew of folks who are just itching to help you grow your best garden ever. So check out LanierNurseryGardens.com for more information and be sure to like us on Facebook and Instagram. Now, let's get growing together. Well, happy July 4th weekend, gang. I'm glad you're joining us here on New Southern Garden. And in order to celebrate this weekend, I thought that we would take some time to talk about some of America's first gardeners. As a matter of fact, many of the founding fathers of our nation were also very avid gardeners. Many of them had farms. Many of them had um, large gardens. Some had small gardens. But I think that they all in their own special way, attributed to what gardening is today. And so, like I said, on this July 4th weekend, we're going to talk about the founding gardeners, uh, which, of course, I get my inspiration from, uh, Andrea Wolf, and really excited to uh, talk about some of these individuals. Uh, she does, and Andrea Wolf has a book called Founding Gardeners. Now, to start off, just like our government, there are three branches of gardening that I like to say. Uh, the people the plants, and the places. And so we're going to talk about all three of those things today as far as the people who are um, associated with the founding gardeners. And then we'll talk about the plants that they would have been growing, just a few. And we'll talk about also the places where their gardens were and what they uh, what they used to... Uh, wh- you can visit many of them today uh, where these gardens are. So the people, we'll talk a little bit about George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and John Adams. And I just wanted to uh, give a quick quote You know, we always like to quote our founders, and they have many quotes that uh, relate to gardening. So, George Washington said, I'd rather be on my farm than be emperor of the world. And of course, for a man who uh, had so much popularity, he could have continued as a kind of president king if he wanted to. But instead, he retired, and he served two terms, which sort of set the precedent uh, for many of the presidential terms we've had. There's only been, what, one or so case where we've had a president uh, stay in the White House longer than two terms. So here we have George Washington looking for his farm, looking forward to it. He'd rather uh, rather be on his farm than the emperor of the world. Now, here is what uh, Thomas Jefferson said. I'm going to sort of... uh, phrase it again in a short way, but he says that the greatest service which can be rendered to uh, uh, any country is the is a useful plant. Rendering a useful plant to your country uh, was, what he said, the greatest service. Now, of course, Thomas Jefferson was very meticulous in about everything he did. He kept uh, records of everything, uh, detailed records. He has a book you can buy reprints of. It wasn't really a book he intended to be published, but someone did later on. It's called the farm book and there's the garden book. And basically it's not, it's dry reading folks. It's not really, you know, a, uh, a magazine, a gardening magazine or anything. Uh, but this book is a detailed calculations of how big the peas got and how, uh, large we're going to talk more about that later on. Um, but he was very detailed about when the frost hit, et cetera, et cetera. But the greatest service, this is coming from statesman, the author of of the Declaration of Independence, 
He puts all that aside, but he says the greatest service that you can render to your country is uh, a useful plant. Now, James Madison, of course, uh, lived in um, Virginia, not too far from where Thomas Jefferson lived. And at one point in time, um, Jefferson was sending over some workers who was going to do some work for Madison, okay? And here is a little quote in, in a letter that Jefferson wrote to Madison about these workers. He says, Dinsmore and Nielsen, those are the names of the workers, Dinsmore and Nielsen set out for uh, yesterday for Montpelier. Of course, Montpelier is James Madison's home. If Mrs. Madison has anything uh, which interests her in the gardening way, she cannot confide, confide it better than to Nielsen. He is a gardener by nature and extremely attached to it. And I like this quote. I mean, it's, you know, a discussion they had, just some uh, correspondence. But I like it because it shows how connected these individuals were. They were sending out helpful workers, uh, helpful gardeners to each other, and encouraging them to grow things and do things in a different way. Um, and, and just, it's sort of like recommendations. You know, at the nursery, Lanier Nursery and Gardens, where you can find me throughout the week in Flowery Branch, People ask me for recommendations all the time on who could plant plants or who could mow their lawn or treat their lawns or whatnot, and they were doing the same thing over 200 years ago. Now, John Adams, John Adams, the quote that I pull here is from a letter, a letter that he wrote to his wife, Mrs. Adams, after giving her basically responsibility of the farm while he was away. Before I read this, let me preface that John Adams was a manure man, okay? He was a manure man. He loved manure. He loved to uh, use it and spread it, and he probably has still the most nutritious farm in America because of his efforts. And I think a lot of the work he did, we gleaned, and we probably use today uh, just because he was so ingrained in manure. But he says this to Mrs. Adams after he was away from the farm. He says, but manure in the hills, if you think best, but manure your barley ground and harrow it well. Now, I do have to confess that I've never written a letter to my wife instructing her to manure anything at our place while I was away, but he did. He did, and that just shows how, while he was not on his farm, how he was thinking of all the things that needed to be done to encourage uh, nutrition, because manure does feed the earth. It also puts carbon back in the soil to build soils even better. And so here we have uh, John Adams talking to his wife, special relationship there, husband and wife. And he's doing his politics thing, but he's thinking about his farm. And so these are just some of the quotes that I like to uh, uh, give to folks to show how even though we can quote these guys based on politics or uh, creating, creating a new nation, just look at all the things that they said about the earth, about growing, and about gardening. So that's a little bit about the people who we're talking about today, of course, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, James Madison. Uh, but what about some of the plants that these individuals would have grown and would have known? Here's a short list of things we're going to talk about as far as the plants that they were working with. Southern Magnolia, one of my favorites. Smooth Hydrangea. Boxwood, of course. Probably everybody knows boxwood, the nice uh, green beauty of the garden. Coneflower. And what we're going to call Mr. Jefferson's Scarlet Runner Beans. 
These are some plants we're going to talk about that uh, you may know or may not know, but I'm going to give you a little bit of details about these plants and, of course, how important uh, they really were to that time and, and maybe uh, that they were so important then that we still use them today. Had those gardeners not used these plants, we may not be using them in our gardens today. But the southern magnolia first, how could we possibly not use southern magnolia in our southern gardens? It's a native plant here, of course. It's found here in the southeast, mainly growing under shade. It usually grows in the woods and sparsely blooms, but cultivators and gardeners we've pulled it out of the woods put it in the sun and guess what it blooms even better there now of course this plant was discovered by probably you could call another founding gardener William Bartram uh, and of course his father's name was John now these individuals they were based up in Pennsylvania they were plant explorers now, there are still plant explorers today, but these guys, these two guys, they were exploring particularly the southeast. And if you really want to learn more about the exploration of the southeast and get an image of what our land here would have looked like and been like before development came about, then you can check out the travels of William Bartram, and it's got some good details about some of our native plants, but also it does have descriptions about the um, Native Americans that were here and communities and other wild forms of wildlife, so it's a pretty good read, actually. It's sort of like reading a travel log. Well, that's what it is. But William Bartram described the Southern Magnolia as the most beautiful tree that has been ever been discovered. Now, since then, we have found other plants, particularly in China and maybe South America, uh, that maybe rival, in my opinion, nothing rivals it uh, because it's one of our native plants. But he does say at this point in time, that this is one of the most beautiful plants he's ever discovered. Now, of course, Southern Magnolia, large evergreen tree, could grow up to 100 feet. But in today's world, we've got several varieties that stay much shorter than that. Well, gang, we've got to go to a break. But when we get back, we're going to talk about the plants that the founding gardeners were using on this happy July 4th weekend. We'll see you shortly. Hang on tight. Earth came to life. Greenness. Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is on the air. Your host, Nathan Wilson, with Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, is excited about providing information every gardener and non-gardener, homeowner, and apartment dweller can use. From vegetables to containers and compost to pruning shears, Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is here for you. Now here's Nathan. Well, gang, we've got a really big show this morning. Of course, we're talking about the founding gardeners. Those are those individuals who not only started our nation, but they also really kicked off the way we garden here in America. And these guys, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, these aren't very big names at all, are they? <laughs> no, they are. And, of course, they had beautiful gardens and landscapes. Uh, each one of them has their own unique and different way that they gardened and cultivated the earth. But they all had an attraction to the earth. And more so than that, they had an attraction for plants. And before the break, we were talking about specific plants that these founding gardeners were using in their very own landscapes. 
the Southern Magnolia being one of them. Of course, it's a very large evergreen tree growing up to 100 feet. Newer varieties today have dwarfed them, so we can use smaller plants in our smaller landscapes that fit a little bit better. This plant has those large, fragrant, ivory summer blooms. The ones at the nursery have been blooming. Uh, fragrant, beautiful, just wonderful trees. They do, they do make great specimen trees. If you're looking for a unique tree that gets a little bit more robust, you can use one as a feature. But if you need a screen to, say, block off some pesky neighbors, then how about using a group of them uh, to hide something that may be a little unsightly or to keep prying eyes out of your back garden. They do grow in sun or shade, very easy to grow. They're native here, so they're used to this climate. But like I said, if 100 foot is too big for you, well, it's gonna be a long time from now for them to get 100 feet, but there are smaller, compact cultivars available. Now, one of the other great plants that is a native plant that these individuals used, and I know they use them because I saw them for myself. Now, they may not be the same plantings uh, that these founding gardeners would have planted, but I saw them at pretty much every estate from um, George, Washington's, George Washington's Mount Vernon to James, uh, James Madison's Montpelier and Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. There, I got them all out. They all start with M, so you got to keep them straight. But this plant is called the smooth hydrangea. It was planted at all these gardens. And they all grew them, but the beauty of them, you can grow them too. You should grow them too. They are found along the Chattahoochee River of all places. And now, of course, in our area, uh, they're also found along the banks of Lake Lanier since it's been dammed, but they're still growing there. They're still growing there. Now, this is very similar to the blue and pink hydrangeas that come from Japan, but these are strictly white. Now we have some cultivars that are pink in flowers, but they're usually a large mop head. Uh, in some cases, they're very dainty and lace cap-like, much smaller flowers. One of the most well-known smooth hydrangeas is called the Annabelle hydrangea. And so you may be very familiar with Annabelle, another, it's the largest blossom I've seen on a smooth hydrangea, very large blossom, full of flowers, full of petals, uh, but they do fine in sun or shade. If you're looking for a sunny spot, no problem. They may need a little extra water in the sun, but if you grow them in the shade, they will bloom for you just fine and probably won't need much extra water from you. Now, you know, we've talked about hydrangeas in the past, and this particular hydrangea does bloom on new and old wood. Uh, so when you prune it, it's a good idea to prune it after it blooms. So it sets some buds on the old wood that you would have early on in the summer. And then, of course, throughout summer, they may sporadically bloom on the new wood as well. Again, usually they're going to be a white flower, but sometimes you do have some pink strains. Um, and again, the biggest flower, the biggest flower of all the smooth hydrangeas is the one that blooms on Annabelle. Annabelle hydrangeas, they are a gorgeous plant, and I've got to put out some at my place because I just thought I don't have smooth hydrangea at my place. Easy to grow. You can propagate them your own from cuttings. Probably just stick a cutting in a glass of water and watch it take root. Now, there is a plant which is not native here, but that's okay. Uh, this plant would have been coming over with the settlers to North America. This is boxwood. Boxwood is used all over Europe and, of course, the English 
the English love their boxwoods. They love their boxwoods to put them in hedges and make tight, confined spaces and just border those beautiful plantings with a solid row of boxwoods. Well, some of that bled over into um, our American gardens, but it goes further back than that even. Because boxwood is really uh, steeped in horticultural history. We see or we have records that as early as 4000 BC, the ancient Egyptians were using boxwood for some purpose, some reason. So this plant goes way back. And of course, we have boxwoods here. There's plenty of boxwoods at uh, older houses in particular that are still there and remaining today. But it's very old. And, And like I said, the cultivating of this boxwood carried over from the old world and into the new and it found its place in many of the founding gardeners and gardens of the time uh, but also in modern history as well now you can use boxwood in your landscape and traditionally boxwood is a large tall shrub which is why it makes great tall hedges and you could definitely do that but you can also use them as low hedges Because boxwood loves to be trimmed and pruned in shape and it responds so well to pruning and trimming that you can keep a boxwood at 10 feet tall or you can keep it at 10 inches tall if you like. But to make it even easier for you, modern horticulture has varieties of boxwoods that stay very low. And so if you want a very low hedge or very low set of shrubs, Uh, that are evergreen all year long looking good then you can go with that and the lower ones the smaller dwarf varieties they don't need as much shearing or pruning now generally boxwood is not a super fast grower so even after you prune a large hedge it's not going to be uh, tomorrow when you prune it again it's going to be quite a while and so they do make great evergreen shrubs just for the shrubbery just as a backdrop for some plants that may bloom or produce flowers But there are some creative ways people have used the boxwood, and they use them like as knot gardens and formal gardens, of course, making parterres and all these cool geometric designs that are then shaped and formed. Maybe a little overkill for our, you know, suburban life gardens. Um, But if you decide to use boxwood in your landscape, I do want to remind you or let you know that there is potential harm. There is a boxwood blight, which can be a disastrous thing. So be on the lookout for boxwood blight if you happen to have boxwoods already. Now a couple of last flowers that I just make a note about are a couple that I saw at Thomas Jefferson's Monticello when me and uh, my wife visited there a few years back. Coneflower. Everybody loves coneflower. They're blooming now. They're looking great. And he used coneflower uh, in his plantings and there was still some growing there. Of course those plantings had been redone but another great American plant that was being used by American gardeners on American soil. It was a perfect fit. And then Thomas Jefferson had this beautiful plant called the Scarlet Runner Bean. The Scarlet Runner Bean, it's a vine, just like any other green bean, but the blossoms are a scarlet red. Sometimes they'll have dark reds and paler reds and maybe even white. But regardless, it was a beautiful plant that he was growing, and it's still being grown today. The best way to grow Scarlet Runner Bean is to buy or purchase a pack of seeds, and then you can save those seeds every year. The seeds are very beautiful and unique, and I think you'll like just keeping a jar of them uh, on display somewhere, knowing you grew them, and they're waiting on that in that jar on a countertop or a bookshelf to be grown 
next season. Uh, so that's Scarlet Runner Bean, and of course, very steeped at Monticello uh, with Mr. Jefferson's Gardens there. Now let's talk about a few of the places. We've talked about the people, we've talked about some of the plants, and let's talk about some of the places that these guys, or gentlemen, maybe I should say, that they were gardening at. Well, first of all, Mr. Washington, he was gardening at uh, Mount Vernon, which of course is on the banks of the Potomac River. He had essentially one feature that I want to talk about that translate today as a lawn. You see, lawns are relatively a new concept for our gardens because a true lawn takes a lot of maintenance. It takes a lot of mowing. Now, back in that day, how did you mow? There was not a lawn mower. There was not a zero-turn radius lawn mower. There wasn't even a uh, weed eater, okay? It was all about clipping and shearing, and it took a lot of people. Uh, unfortunately, of course, those people were most likely slaves who were doing that kind of work. So it took a lot of work to do these things. It also took a lot of money, but of course he had the wealth, he had the land, he had uh, the enslaved labor. Unfortunately, uh, that is the realities of, of history. Uh, and so, but today now, he, so let me back up, I should describe, they called it a bowling green. And right in front of Mount Vernon, you've got this big lawn surrounded by native trees that he selectively went into the woods, pulled out of the woods, and planted around this bowling green. It is the central landscape element of Mount Vernon. It's a precursor to the lawn. And so we see today, many of our homes, what is directly in front of them? A bowling green, a lawn. So just to know that some of these things that these individuals were doing back then are related to what we're doing now but of course we have mechanization we can mow them we can fertilize them we do things that they couldn't imagine of doing uh without physical labor it still takes physical labor but you know sitting on a riding lawnmower is not too difficult compared to using a scythe to chop and cut the uh the the grass to the ground now there is one other feature that i want to talk about at um, mr washington's mount vernon and that's the haha that's right, the haha, and I'm not laughing, but this feature in the landscape was actually a British feature. It was designed to section the farm from the pleasure grounds, because remember, back in those days, you had your house, but you had your animals not too far away, nearby, and how do you keep them away from the house? With fence, right, or hedgerows, but the British were trying to create ways that they could enjoy what we call the landscape revolution. Instead of having tight, confined spaces that you can't see beyond, how do we embrace and open up the view? Well, of course, the, the view at Mount Vernon is very open. You can see trees far off, and you can see groupings of shrubs here and there. There's no tight, confined boundaries. And the ha-ha was one way that Mr. Washington was able to do that. Basically, the ha-ha is a sunken wall. So it's a ditch that's lowered into the ground. There's a wall built to hold the soil up. But then on the opposite side, the pasture side, you have this turfed ditch on the pasture side. And so that kept the animals at bay, right? They couldn't climb over this short wall, but it also opened the view and it kept the view uh, more visible. And the the way it got its name, the haha, was that when an individual, say, came out of the, or, or saw this view, they looked and they saw animals right there in the pasture. There was no fence, there was no hedgerow to keep them separate, and they thought, how are those animals not coming up to the house and eating all the vegetable crops, right? 
So when you walk further into the pasture, you get to this ha-ha, to this ditch, and the onlooker started to laugh. Ah-ha-ha-ha, I see how they did it. It was a little landscape trick, was it not? So the ha-ha is actually a British invention, but it translated into America. It was brought into America, and the uh, gentleman, George Washington, was one who employed it. And to this day, to this day, if you visit Mount Vernon, uh, in Washington, uh, in, in, in Virginia, then you will be able to see the ha-ha that was installed there. And like I said, it's just a short, shallow wall with a ditch on the pasture side to keep the animals out and the people near the house, you know? So the ha-ha revolutionized the way that we think today by keeping our landscapes open, grass flowing, just beautiful, beautiful vistas, and you can keep your animals out of the house. <laughs> well, gang, we've got to take a quick break. But when we get back, we're going to wrap the show up with going over to um, Monticello and Montpelier with Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. Hang on tight. See you shortly. Hey gang, do you sometimes feel like you are riding a lonely trail while gardening, all alone with no one to join in the fun? Well, join the new Southern Garden community today and find peace of mind by sharing your experiences, whether they be poor ones or successful ones. New Southern Garden is on Facebook and Instagram, so I'd love for you to friend, follow, like, share whatever it is we're doing these days. Also, you can check out our website at NewSouthernGarden.com where you can not only find every episode of the show ever, but you can also send us a question via our Contact Us page. It's never fun gardening alone. So get social with the New Southern Garden family and let's grow well. Well, traveling on a little south of Mount Vernon, of course, that's in Virginia, right on the Potomac River, where George Washington spent his life farming, growing. We go down into the more southern part of Virginia to where we go to Monticello and the place where Mr. Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, made his residence, made his farms. Of course, today we're talking about the founding gardeners and, you know, it seems appropriate here on the weekend of July 4th. So we're talking about the people who were the founding gardeners. We've already talked a bit about George Washington. So if you missed any part of that discussion or discussion about the plants they were growing or the quotable things they said about growing things, then check out this episode online at NewSouthernGarden.com. In a few hours, it will be posted there, and you can share it with people on your Facebook page or wherever, and in, in have other people enjoy the memories and the history of the past that really has pushed us to the way we garden today. But Mr. Jefferson's Monticello is very iconic. He is very rigorous. I already mentioned at the beginning, very rigorous about taking notes and details, very detailed-oriented. And the vegetable garden is one place where he was very detailed uh, as far as describing certain things of when things happened, when things bloomed. Just a few things in from his garden book. He says this right here, hotspur peas were killed by frost on October 23rd. 
Now, I don't keep that kind of detail about my vegetable garden. I don't know if you do either, but he did. And year after year, he made notes and had a diary, basically. That became the Garden Book by Thomas Jefferson. Like I said, kind of a dry read, but it is historical. (laughs) Something else he says here, asparagus beans that two-thirds pint sown are large square rows two and one-half feet apart, and one feet and 18 inches apart in the row, one-half at each distance. Now, like I said, if I was to plant an asparagus bed, I would just do it. I wouldn't necessarily say how large of a square and how many feet and how many rows apart and all that, but he did. Like I said, everything he did is very meticulous. He has some uh, inventions he's out, out there, and of course, all the writing that he did was very detailed, and he did the same thing in the vegetable garden. Now, one thing that we talked about earlier, he said, was that any that the greatest service anybody could provide to their country was to introduce a new plant, a useful plant. And here's something else he said, I am curious to select one or two of the best species or variety of every garden vegetable and to reject all others from the garden to avoid the dangers of mixing or degeneracy. And of course, what he's saying there is that he was looking to grow the best possible plants he could. Essentially, what uh, Thomas Jefferson was doing is he was breeding his own vegetable plants. And of course, you can do that today. Maybe we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks on how you can breed read and make sure that the first thing you can do with your vegetable plants, of course, is to grow them out, see which ones perform the best, and save the seeds from the best performers. Now, that is going to stimulate uh, your plants in the future to be very similar to that plant, and hopefully, year after year, you're selecting better and better plants. That's one way that we have um, achieved so much variety and diversity in plants, uh, particularly in the vegetable garden and annual plants. We select the best, and you can cross them and hybridize them to make them even stronger. One other thing that I'll note about Mr. Jefferson is that he really attempted to grow grapes in the South. It's very difficult, very hard in our part of the world, but he attempted it. Now, he had more failures um, than he had successes, but he was actually described as America's first distinguished viticulturalist. Now, of course, that word viticulturalist is a word for a person who grows grapes. Um, And also, they described him as the greatest patron of wine and wine uh, growing that this country has yet had. Again, He had two vineyards. It led to continual replanting and very little success, but he tried and tried. Another thing that he did was he cultivated U.S. native grapes, grapes that were native to the United States. What would that be? Well, you know, those tasty little grapes that we get late in the season, like muscadines, scuppernongs, those kinds of things would have been some things that he trialed. And perhaps, I like to think that perhaps his his adamant... uh, His his adamant pursuit of growing fine grapes led to the fact that we continue to grow muscadines. Maybe if it wasn't for Thomas Jefferson, nobody would be growing muscadines. But we've got a great selection, of course, at Lanier Nursery and Gardens. We love muscadines. And we found that um, Thomas Jefferson did too. Well, let's go to just a short drive over in Virginia from Monticello. uh, Monticello to Montpelier, where Mr. Madison lived. Now, Mr. Madison, you go to Montpelier, and there's not like these huge, elaborate gardens. There is one there uh, that is huge and elaborate, in my opinion, very beautiful garden, but his place is very landscapey, 
a lot of trees, a lot of open pasture, great views, great vistas. But that's essentially how he left it. The way it is is essentially how he left it. He has been described, James Madison, as the forgotten father of American environmentalism. And I think this is a point that we need to make, that gardening is not just about the newest, coolest plants, but it's also about how do we work with nature and make sure that we are producing gardens that are ecologically sound. Listen to what Madison said. Of all the errors in our rural economy, none is perhaps so much to be regretted because none is so difficult to be repaired as the injudious Injudious? Injudicious? And excessive destruction of timber. So he was saying there over 200 years ago that we do need to protect our woodlands. We do need uh, to develop smartly. And I would agree. And I think that our gardens should follow suit. As a matter of fact, Montpelier, James, James Madison's home, is 2,650 2, acres of land. That basically remains almost the same as he left it. Now, of that 2,600 acres, 1,800 are wooded acres, including the 200-acre old-growth landmark forest that you could visit. There are probably over 50 species of specimen trees that he has preserved. It's a beautiful place. Now, just a last note on uh, Mr. Madison's Montpelier is that later on, Later on, the place was purchased and owned by the DuPont family, particularly a lady named the Annie DuPont Roger, Annie DuPont Rogers. Now, she created a garden there, and this garden uh, was built on top of a Madison-era garden, but keeping it in the original style. Now, when I visited Montpelier, I found this particular garden to be very beautiful. It's a walled garden, so it's got these high walls around it made out of uh, brick, very beautiful, very pretty. It's very formal, right? Very formal. You go in and she actually had terraced. I don't know if she did it or if Madison had already done this, but it's sort of a terraformed garden. So you have distinct layers and levels. And right down the middle, as you walk in through that big gateway, is this straight line overlooking a beautiful mountain view. And on either side, some beautiful plantings of plants, uh, all kinds of plants, uh, some shrubs, some trees, Obviously, things that haven't been there for over 200 years, but still keeping in style with, with what was there before, maintaining some history is what Annie DuPont Rogers did. I'm sure she put her flair on it, as we all should. You should make your landscape, put your impression on your landscape and make your impression on your landscape because it's the place where you live and grow the place where somebody else may live and grow, but here we see a succession of time. The plants, the people, and the places. And think about it. The same plants, the same places where they were gardening, we are now too. That's the United States. And on this happy 4th of July weekend, I hope that you think about that, that we're growing in the same soil our founders did. Well, for New Southern Garden, this is Nathan Wilson, hoping you stay well and grow well. We'll see you next week, and happy 4th. Hey, thanks for joining us for this edition of Nathan Wilson's New Southern Garden Show. If you have a comment about today's program, you can reach out to Nathan by sending an email to grow at LanierNurseryGardens.com. Also get more information at NewSouthernGarden.com. Join us next Saturday on Local News Radio 93.9 FM and AM 1350 for Nathan Wilson's New Southern Garden Show. 